Uh, welcome to those that are just, yeah, every single week. We do deeply appreciate you. Uh, we don't just want to welcome those of you that are new, but also those of you that are, yeah, all the time. Uh, I read an article this week. Uh, it was actually published back in November. That's two months ago for those of you that are still adjusting to the fact that it's a, a new year, not 2018. Uh, new York Times article uh, entitled, How to Have Closer Friendships and Why You Need Them. Uh, and I didn't actually go looking for the article, it just sort of popped up in my Facebook, because uh, I, this is the way I am, I tend to use Facebook as much for following publications like Wired Magazine and New York Times as I do for posting first day of term school photos. And uh, it's a good article, I, I, I recommend it. Uh, one of the things that I liked about it was there was a lot of practical advice for working on friendships, things like uh, consistency, availability, paying attention when you're with somebody, letting yourself be known, practical things like that. And, and you can read that for yourself. But one of the things that really struck me was it was such a valuable reminder of why we need people in our lives. The article states close friendships are actually necessary for optimal health and well-being. Uh, Dr. Amar Levine, a psychiatrist and neurobiologist quoted in the article, says that social connections are the most powerful way for us to regulate our emotional stress. If you are in distress, being in proximity to someone you're securely attached to is the most effective way to calm yourself. I mean, just think about that. That is incredibly powerful. How many of you, when you think about stress, we think about exercise, we think about diet, we think about regulating our work schedule. How many of us think about friendship in terms of regulating stress? But according to this psychiatrist and neurobiologist, if you're in distress, being in proximity to someone you're securely attached to is the most effective way to calm yourself. I mean, we should all have loads of friends, right? But what's equally important is when the article says that close friendships are so important, often because they are so difficult to form. Very often we're so worried that someone could come into our inner circle and hurt us that we keep out people who could be amazing friends. So we have this thing called friendship and social psychology and psychiatry and uh, neuroscience all tell us that it's vital to function as a healthy individual and it can actually be quite hard to do. Does the Bible have anything to say on something that is so vital? And in fact, the Bible has loads to say about friendship, especially when we realize that community is collective friendship. We have incredible examples of friendship in the Bible. We have Proverbs that tells us what we should look for in a friend and the kind of friends that we should avoid. We have Jesus who calls those who follow him his friends. We have the New Testament letters that communicate how strangers who love Jesus and are gradually learning to love each other and be friends ought to engage with one another. See, it's not just social psychology and psychiatry and neuroscience that tells us that friendship and community matters. It's the Bible that tells us they're vital. And of course, I don't have to tell you we live in an age where busyness and schedule and commute and extramural activities and hobbies very often seem to drive out the possibility of forming deep, lasting, life-giving friendships. As elders, we sat down at the end of last year and we said, what are the things that we wanna focus on next year? What are the things that we wanna focus on in 2020 as Common Ground Durmwald? It's not all we're gonna do, we're gonna to continue to do other things. We're gonna to continue to do men's events and women's events and outreach events and social justice. But, but what's our primary focus for 2020 going to be? And we realize it actually needs to be super simple. 
Sundays and life groups. Our focus for 2020, Sundays and life groups. We'll do other things, but our focus is gonna be Sundays and life groups. Sundays where as a larger community, we get to worship together, pray together, sit under the preaching of the word together, get encouraged together, take communion together, and in the limited amount that can happen on a Sunday, do community together. And life groups are where as a smaller community, we get to love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. Now, I want you to notice how my language even changed as I described Sundays and life groups. See, Sundays are together. Large groups, a lot of receiving limited opportunities, real opportunities, but limited opportunities for individuals to contribute. Life groups are one another. Each person interacting on a personal level. It's where you get to fully express, fully contribute to, to hear, but also to be heard in ways that simply logistically cannot happen on a Sunday when we have 80 to 180 people in the room. So this morning, I wanna show you why life group is so vital, and then I wanna show you what role you have to play in community, why you need it, and what you should bring to it. Now, by the way, starting not this Monday, but the following Monday, we actually have three weeks of training for all life group leaders. We're gonna be looking at what does it look like to shepherd a group of people into these realities. Leading a life group is one of the most spiritually significant things that you can possibly do. Let me say that again. Leading a life group is one of the most spiritually significant things that you can possibly do. Leading people, caring for people, praying for them, speaking into their lives with God's word and encouragement. And I know it's the amazing rock stars that we have that lead worship that sort of get all of the attention and we love our singing, we love our band, we love our worship leaders. But let me tell you a secret. The reality is that a church can actually survive even in 2020 with mediocre music, but a church cannot survive without leaders loving and caring for people. If you've got mediocre music, but you've got leaders that are loving and caring for people and speaking into their lives, your church will thrive. If you've got fantastic singing and mediocre leaders or no leaders, there's no community, there's no life, there's no speaking into people's lives. Now, there's zero assumption that because you've come on this training, you will definitely be leading a life group. We're actually asking all of our existing life group leaders, even those who've been leading for years, to come on the training again, because this is gonna be such a focus for this year. So you're totally free to come and see what is involved. So, why we need community and what you should bring to it. I'm gonna read from Hebrews chapter 10, from verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, very often as we read this text, our inclination is to focus on that part in the middle, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, right? Typical pastor. Attendance on a Sunday has been dropping. Attendance at life group has been dropping. If we're a little bit even more cynical, maybe we think the giving has been dropping, right? Now, some of you have got into the habit of skipping church. Now, some of you have got into the habit of skipping life group. But that's actually not what's going on at all. Why is the author of Hebrews so concerned about people not meeting together? Well, to answer that question, we need to find the passage that this text finds its place in. Because when you read the whole passage, 
at first these verses seem hopelessly out of place. Because in context, he's not talking about community. He's not talking about spiritual gifts. He's not talking about how we ought to behave or treat one another or ethics or morality or anything of the sort. If you read the few verses before and after, in context, he's talking about Jesus dying on the cross and how that gives us confidence to draw near to God, convinced that our sins have been forgiven. And if that doesn't sound like the kind of context in which you talk about community and encouraging one another, as it surprised me when I read it again this week, it's because maybe we just aren't used to thinking biblically enough. So I really wanna set up the context. I'm gonna take some time to set up the context so we get just how vital this is. And I'm gonna do that by very quickly giving you an overview of the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. Because I wanna show you the point that he's building to. There's four main points that he makes over and over again in these first 10 chapters. So I'm gonna give you a line or two on each chapter so we can see what he's driving at and what the significance of community actually is. So in Hebrews chapter one, the author tells us that God has spoken to us through his son who is better than any prophet or any dream or even angels because Jesus, the son, is the exact representation of God's being and he's been given a place on God's throne having overcome Satan's sin and death. In chapter two, he tells us, therefore, you better pay attention to all of this. But not only is Jesus the exact representation of who God is, he also became absolutely and fully human. He became just like us so he could represent us. And because he became just like us, he understands our struggles and our difficulties because he's been through the human experience. He's able to help us when we are tempted. Chapter three says Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was this incredibly faithful servant over God's house, but Jesus is the incredibly faithful son over God's house. So don't be like those people who heard God's faithful servant Moses and hardened their hearts and tested God and missed out on entering God's promised land. Chapter four, through Jesus, there is in fact a better promised land than the one that was promised to God's people through Moses. It's a, it's a promised land of rest where we can rest from trying to meet God's standards, trying to be good enough. You see, God's word is living and active. It will judge everything you think you've kept hidden. It will lay it all bare and you will be exposed. We love to quote those verses. In context, those verses are terrifying. It's about laying everything in your life that you're trying to keep hidden because it's shameful and embarrassing and exposing it. But thank goodness we have this high priest Jesus who represents us and is just like us, except that he never sinned. Because he's our representative and understands our weaknesses, we can approach God's throne with confidence. Now he begins to get into some of the, the specifics of how the Old Testament priesthood worked. And if you're not familiar with that, forgive me, I'm gonna move through it quite quickly, but see if you can get the gist of it. Chapter five, he says, a, a regular high priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, because he was a sinner, as well as the sins of others. But Jesus is a true high priest able to intercede with God for us because he is without sin. So make sure you grow in your understanding of this. Chapter six, make sure you continue to grow in God's grace rather than becoming lazy and just assuming that you are where you need to be in God but you can be confident of growing because God has promised and we have confidence because Jesus is our high priest. Chapter seven, Jesus is a priest like this guy in the Old Testament called Melchizedek who Abraham himself gave the tithe to. Like Jesus, he was both a priest and a king. I mean, think how great this guy Melchizedek was if even Abraham tithed to him. 
What that tells us is the Old Testament priesthood clearly wasn't good enough if we need someone else who is both a priest and a king. I mean, there were loads of priests. They kept dying, right? Even if just from old age. But now there is an eternal priest. And those priests had to make sacrifices over and over again for their sins and for the sins of the people. But Jesus sacrificed once and for all by sacrificing himself. They were imperfect high priests by the law, but Jesus has been made the perfect high priest by God's promise. Chapter eight, the high priest offered sacrifices on earth, but Jesus ascended to heaven. Those things were just a shadow of Jesus. He is far superior to them, and so is the covenant that he gives us, the relationship that we have with God. God promised he would make us his people and change our hearts, that we desire to follow him, and he will forgive us. That's the relationship that Jesus brings. Chapter nine, the high priest used to go into this earthly place called a tabernacle, into a room called the most holy place with blood from a bull that had been killed, that blood representing that sin is so bad that something has to die. And that was for his sins and the people's sins. But Jesus didn't enter an earthly room, he went to heaven itself. The blood of bulls made people ceremonially clean. How much more does Jesus' blood cleanse us so that we can serve the living God? Jesus' blood is the thing that seals this new relationship we have with God. Just as we all are going to die, so Jesus died to take away the sins of many, and he will come again, not to take away sins, but to bring salvation to those that follow him. We're almost there. Chapter 10. The law could never take away sin fully. Because every year when the high priest made a a sacrifice, yes, it made you ceremonially clean, but it actually kind of sucked because it was a reminder that you'd sinned since he made the sacrifice last year. So like, yes, I'm ceremonially clean, but darn it, he had to do it again because the sin is still in my life. And every day the priest would stand and do the ceremonies, but Jesus has sat down because his work is finished. There's no more need for sacrifice because sins have been forgiven. Then picking up in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And now our text for this morning Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, this isn't a pastor who's worried about attendance on a Sunday or life group that has been dropping or that giving is down. This is a pastor who wants his people to know who Jesus is. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest. He's better than angels. This is a pastor who wants his people to know what Jesus has done. He's offered a sacrifice for sin that is once and for all. Guilt is taken away. You can rest from trying to be good enough because Jesus is good enough. He sat down. The work is finished. There's these four themes that are repeated over and over in these 10 chapters. Jesus is better, his work is finished, pay attention and have confidence. Over and over, those are the four things we repeat. He's better than Moses, he's better than the angels, he's better than the prophets, he's better than the high priest, he's better than the law. His work is finished. All those contrasts with the priestly system, it happened over and over on earth as opposed to in heaven. Every single year, standing versus sitting, it is finished. Over and over, he says, pay attention. 
don't slack off, don't be lazy, don't coast, dig into God's grace, but have confidence. Because it is finished, have confidence. This is a pastor who wants you to know whatever you've done, however you've messed up, whatever guilt you're carrying around, whatever shame you feel, you can draw near to God because your conscience is cleansed and you have been washed clean. Hold on to God's promises. But Gareth, how can I hold on to God's promises when I don't feel clean? You don't know what I've done. I'm struggling with my faith. I don't know if God can forgive me. Gareth, I'm struggling to forgive others. I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with bitterness. I'm struggling with pride. I'm struggling with sexual temptation. What would this pastor say to that? What would the Bible say to that? Here's what he'd say. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here's why I've taken all this time to show you this context of these verses about community. Because the context is not just a happy add-on. It's not just about feeling better because you have some friends. It's not about how to behave. It's about how to go on following Jesus. It's about how to make it when you don't feel you can, when you don't feel like God can forgive you, when you don't know how to forgive that other person. This might sound a bit shocking, but you know what you, many of you don't need at that point? Many of you don't need another sermon telling you to forgive. Chances are you know that if you've been around for a while. Many of you don't need another sermon telling you you are forgiven. Chances are you know that. Now, I'm not saying that sermons aren't important. I'm preaching. I'm saying they're not enough. Without regularly meeting with a small group of people that are gradually getting to know you and you are gradually getting to know that is not enough without regularly meeting with a small group of people that can speak specific words of encouragement to you and to whom you can speak specific words of encouragement, that is not enough. Now, some of you might be wanting to push back a little bit at this point and say, but you know, Gareth, the, the text is not differentiating between Sundays and life groups. That's sort of an anachronistic distinction. Life groups didn't exist in those days. They're not biblical at all. They're not mentioned in the Bible. And in one sense, you'd be right. But what you might not be taking into account is that this was written to a culture where you worked probably within half a kilometer of where you lived, so you didn't spend one to two hours in traffic every day, and you weren't driving around from extracurricular activity to extracurricular activity. So what you actually did was, before work, every single morning, you went with the 20 or 30 people who were in your church, and you had church together every single morning before work. And then on Sundays, you had a meal together every single week. So let's do away with life groups. How many of you are willing to commit to meeting with 20 or 30 people every single morning to be more biblical before work and having lunch with those people every single Sunday? Any hands? Mike, yes, okay. Those of you that are interested, you can speak to Mike afterwards. Guys, this is why we have life groups. They're not mentioned in the Bible, but we're trying to contextualize the biblical practice into a different cultural reality in our 21st century lives. Now, think about this for a moment. The author is not saying, make sure you don't get into the habit of missing your once a week life group because it's vital for your walk with Jesus so you understand how to follow him and have confidence to do so. He's not saying that. He's saying, make sure you don't get into the habit of occasionally missing your everyday meeting with the people in your church because it's vital for your walk with Jesus so you understand how to follow him and have the confidence to do so. 
if he was concerned about people's confidence in their sins being forgiven and following after Jesus when they missed meeting daily, how much more of a warning is this for us? The reality is we need reminders, we need encouragement from the front in terms of preaching God's word, but also from people who are getting to know us and can speak individually into our lives. We need community because without it, following Jesus is going to be harder, understanding forgiveness of sins is going to be slower, and growing to be more like Jesus is going to take longer if it happens at all, guys. But most of all, when we need to draw near to God with confidence, understanding that our sins are forgiven, holding unswervingly to our faith, we aren't gonna make it unless we have people around us who can love us and encourage us. Guys, this is why if and when you become a member of Common Ground Durbanville, we say in order to be a member, you need to be in a life group. Being in a life group is not optional if you are a member here. And by being in a life group, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put my finger right on it. By being in a life group, I mean having it as a priority in your life, where you're actually putting off other distractions and making an effort to go every week, not allowing each and every distraction to be a reason not to go. Now, we're not being legalistic. We understand life happens. I mean, this coming week, probably many of you have parent-teacher meetings, and those are important, and if you have to skip life group to go to those, to be there for your kid, of course, Yes. But you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that just allowing every distraction, right? This needs to be a priority in our lives. And when things are a priority, we prioritize them. Guys, this is only as important. It is only as important as being the fuel and the encouragement that allows you to hold unswervingly to faith and understanding that God forgives you when life is hard. That's all this is. Forgive my tongue-in-cheek comment, but this is why we need community. Secondly, what we need to bring to community. Now, again, I phrased this very deliberately because many of us want to ask, what do I get if I go to community? But that's not the kind of question that's gonna build life-giving community that will allow you and others to hold on to faith and God's forgiveness when things are tough. That kind of community is built when every single person or at least 99% of the people, and the exception is the other person in the room, not you, come asking, what can I bring to this community? And so the pastor here mentions three ingredients to a community that will instill faith and confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done. Number one, spurring one another onto love. Number two, spurring one another onto good deeds. And number three, encouraging one another. Now, if those sound quite similar, it's because they are quite similar, but there's some specific nuance within each. Firstly, we spur one another on to love. What does it mean to spur one another on? Well, it means to encourage, to motivate, to draw out. Here's what happens in a typical life group, at least the ones that I led, maybe yours are much better than mine. People start off talking about the Bible, hypothetically. Well, if that means that, then those people somewhere out there should probably do that. Anybody been there? Okay, it's easy, it's non-threatening, it's safe, you can give your opinion, and even if you're not 100% correct, it's okay, because it's all hypothetical. And it's okay to be in that space if you're a new group, or if you've just joined a group, you're trying to figure out, are these people safe? Can they be trusted? Are they gonna jump down my throat if I say something wrong? But if your life group exists in that space and has for a long time, 
it's time to either shake things up or find a new life group. Am I allowed to say that? I, I say that because I want what the pastor of this passage wants for you. Life group that brings life. Life group that brings life. If your life group has existed in that space for a long time, it's not helpful because that kind of community is not spurring one another onto anything except more and more and more opinions that don't help anybody. Okay, here's what should happen. You've been talking hypothetically for a week or two. It's opinions, it's ideas, it's disconnected from real life. People are feeling each other out. And let's say this week you're talking about forgiveness. And there's a lull in the conversation. And someone says, probably fairly quietly, that's all well and good, but how am I supposed to forgive dot, dot, dot? How am I supposed to forgive my mother? How am I supposed to forgive my colleague? How am I supposed to forgive my ex-spouse? Now, if this is the first time that it's happened, the room goes very quiet, all the eyes shift towards the leader because now people are like a bit nervous. They want to know what to do. It's awkward. It's awkward because it's real. This is the moment when a group begins to move from acquaintance to community, from strangers to some people that are developing genuine friendship. It's uncomfortable because it's vulnerable. Remember the New York Times article? Close friendships are so important to us because they are so difficult to form. Now, what do you do? How do you respond? Especially when the person has said something that they're struggling with biblically, like I'm struggling to forgive. Well, we, we know they should forgive, so we probably need to tell them, well, you just need to forgive that person, right? I mean, surely, surely that's what we need to do, right? Not actually. If we want to encourage and motivate and draw out love, we first of all have to respond with love. People's biggest fear is being rejected, alienated, or in some way excluded. That's why friendships are hard. You're, you're risking those things. That's why Jesus faced the greatest risk. He was offering himself as friend to the whole world. His rejection involved being tortured to death on the cross. Let's think, how would Jesus respond to that? Remember chapter two and chapter four. He's the one who in every way understands our weakness. He's like us without sin. But because of that, he has compassion on us. We spur one another onto love by first of all demonstrating love. It always starts with yourself. Compassion, understanding, responding as Jesus would. That's what creates safety. That's what creates intimacy and friendship. That's what creates the kind of environment where someone who is currently not walking in love can then be spurred on to walk in love. Responding to someone who's telling you that they aren't operating in the most loving or biblical way with criticism or rejection or in any way an unloving manner is not gonna cause them to be more loving. Think about how you would feel if you opened up about a difficult area in your life and somebody just jumped down your throat. Or to spur one another onto love, we first of all have to demonstrate love. We spur one another to love by urging them, as verse 22, to draw near to God. That's the context in which he's talking about community. He's saying you need to draw near to God and community helps us draw near to God. You need to meet together so that your community can help you draw near to God. You're struggling to forgive. Draw near to God by considering how he forgives you. You're struggling with temptation. Draw near to God by considering how Jesus understands that temptation and went through it himself and forgives you. You're struggling with anger, draw near to God by considering the righteous anger he has against everything you've ever done wrong and how he offers to forgive you. Here's the point, you don't spur one another on without being loving and you don't spur one another to love without drawing them closer to God. Do this because it will make you feel better, because it's the right thing to do, because the Bible says so. 
That might all be true, but all that does is put guilt on people. What spurs you on is drawing closer to God and His love and His forgiveness and His work in your life. And that kind of community, having that impact in your life is what allows you to draw near to God when life is tough. When you don't have the answers, maybe, maybe you've got them in your head, but maybe you just don't have them emotionally. Being in that kind of community is what allows you to draw close to God when life is tough. So first, as we come to community, we come to spur one another on in love. Secondly, we spur one another on to good deeds. Okay, I told you earlier that we are starting Life Group Leaders Training in two Mondays time. And there's maybe, maybe one person who's gonna respond to that announcement for the sake of the announcement, okay? And probably only because they're in a life group and their leader has already been encouraging them to pursue leadership. Now, let me just say this. If you are the kind of person that's new here and you do aspire to leadership, this is not a disinvitation because you don't meet the description that I just made, okay? But, but as leaders, we know how people are. We know that you need encouragement. I'm just speaking based on what we know. Many of us are timid and don't rate ourselves and we need someone to come to us and say, hey, why don't you give that a go? Some of the, some of the most extroverted, outgoing, dynamic leaders and servers in this community are, believe it or not, people that have said to me and the other elders and the other leaders, I'm not really sure. I'm not sure that I'm right for that team. I'm not sure I'm ready to serve in that way. People that if you looked at them, you, you'd never think that because we all need to be spurred on and we all need to spur others on. Paul tells us in a number of places that the church is like a body and any part not serving, meaning any individual not serving is causing the body to be weaker. This follows on from spurring one another onto love because good deeds is basically love actualized. It's love made visible and doing something which ultimately is the only love that really makes a difference. Jesus loved us and so he died for us. That's his love actualized. If you get any part of that, it should result in a love welling up inside of you that makes you want to love people in a life group or welcome guests into church or count the offering or teach people about Jesus to love people by serving them in some way as Jesus loved you by serving you. But we need encouragement. Sometimes we need validation. Someone comes to you and says, well, you know, I've been thinking about teaching kids, but I'm not quite sure. And assuming they are the kind of person you want teaching your kids, I can totally see you doing that. I'm friends with Heather. Is it okay if I WhatsApp her your details so that she can make contact with you and you can go on some training? One of the sins of our current generation is we tend to only think in terms of things that will benefit us. And so I'm a little hesitant to say this next point because I don't want to feed that and allow that to be our motivation because our motivation should be love for others in the church and wanting the best for others in the church. But this is biblical truth, so I must say it. Serving others will grow you. Serving others will grow you. It'll help you move beyond personal pain and hurt. It will fulfill you. It'll satisfy your desire for spiritual significance even if you don't realize that you have one. If you've been sitting here for a while in Common Ground Durbanville, and you're feeling spiritually unfulfilled, before you change churches seeking spiritual fulfillment, let me ask you this question. Are you serving? Because if the answer is no, please don't change churches. You're not gonna find spiritual fulfillment somewhere else by just sitting there and not serving. That's not how God has created us. You're just gonna be dissatisfied there as well. Now, having realized all of this, 
Those who are serving, get in your life groups and encourage others to do the same. Tell them about the spiritual significance it brings to your life. Tell them about the incredible joy and grace you experience from God when you minister, sometimes even out of a place of past hurt with the compassion with which he has had compassion on you. Show them how they have a part to play. See, when life is hard and you need to draw close to God, Serving in good deeds doesn't help you because you're a better person that God listens to more. That would invalidate everything that he said so far. But it helps you because you've experienced what it looks like to depend on God's grace in every area of your life. You see, as you serve, especially when you serve people, you need God's grace. Okay, people can be difficult sometimes. And so as you serve and you give of yourself, you learn to depend on God's grace. You learn to draw close to God. So when life is hard, you're in the habit of depending on God's grace and drawing close to God. And when you encourage other people to serve, you're putting them on that trajectory in their lives. When you encourage someone who's not currently serving in your life group and saying, hey, I could really see you serving in that area, you're not saying to them, hey, the church has a need that I think you could fulfill. That's maybe this much of it. That's maybe half a percent of it. What you're saying to them is, I want you to learn what it looks like to grow in grace, to learn how to depend on God, and you're gonna do that as you serve so that one day when life is tough and you really need to draw close to God, that, that reality is gonna be evident in your life of leaning into His grace. Thirdly, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. There's a sense in which this in, just encapsulates everything I've been speaking about so far. Why do we go to life group? What do we bring to life group? Encouragement. We need encouragement. We need to bring encouragement. We need to hear from someone that knows us and our situation and whose situation we know that God is for us. It's important to hear that preached on a Sunday, but it's just as important, maybe more so, when that person who's been through a hellish divorce or cancer or lost a loved one or has that horrible boss, when they tell us, God will be there for you just like he was there for me. And you know what happens next week when they're the ones needing encouragement? You tell them, man, you helped me so much last week. You encouraged me to draw near to God. And you know what? He was faithful. And I know this week he's gonna be there for you. Guys, life is hard sometimes. It's tough sometimes. We don't know how we're gonna make it sometimes. And so God sends grace through Jesus who understands what it's like to go through difficulty, who died for your sins to bring you back to God. And God sends community who understand what it's like to go through difficulty and who've experienced needing to draw close to God and to serve his people to experience grace. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna experience another way that God sends grace. Another way that God sends grace is he, is he gives us the gift of communion. It's one of the together moments that we get to partake of together as a larger community where we get to remind ourselves of everything that we've heard about, everything the, the author of Hebrews was speaking about. Jesus' work is complete. It's a sacrifice. He's got into heaven. He's the high priest interceding for our weaknesses. It's an opportunity to remind us whatever we've been through, whatever we've done, we can come and find grace. And if maybe you're feeling the lack of grace, maybe you're feeling not sure how God can forgive me, take encouragement from the people around you. Take encouragement from the other people that are coming forward saying, I too need forgiveness. I too need grace. I too need things washed out of my life. I too need a reminder of everything. And together, corporately, we have faith in God's forgiveness. What I want us to do now is I want us to stand. The band is gonna come up. 
just before the band prays, I just want to invite uh, Nicole up. She just had a word right at the end of worship. We didn't have a chance to share it. Just a word of encouragement for all of us, something she felt God laying on her heart during worship this morning. Thanks, Gareth. Hi, everyone. Um, when we were in worship, I felt so encouraged by what we were singing. I just thought, wow, this is amazing. Um, it's been a hectic week, and I think maybe for those of you who've had kids starting school, our little one started grade one, so there's like a whole new rhythm and routine happening. Um, and having had a week where I'm thinking, oh, wow, like I've just got my head above water on the weekend. Um, standing here and singing the amazing songs that the worship team had chosen and just feeling God's victory um, and saying, wow, it's so easy to walk through the week and not feel victorious. Or it's so easy to feel victorious in areas of your life and in others not um, and to wonder where God is in those areas. And as I was standing there, there were two Psalms that came to my mind and the one was Psalm 137. And if you read it, it is um, where the, the people are in exile in Babylon. And they're basically going, God, where are you? Um, what is happening? And, um, and then Psalm 47, which is like the complete opposite, which says, God has ascended with a mighty shout. The Lord has ascended with trumpets blaring. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king over all the earth. Praise him with the psalm. God reigns above the nations, sitting on his holy throne. The rulers of the world have gathered together with the people of the God of Abraham. For all the kings of the earth belong to God. He is highly honored everywhere. And sometimes we don't feel like God is in charge or we don't feel like um, he has, we have the victory over a particular thing or whatever. But I just want to encourage you, God is in charge of everything. And when you take the opportunity to stand um, before him or to sit before him and read his word or to sit in community with other people, be encouraged by the stories that you hear, um, be, be encouraged by what you read and just know God is there and he is the God above everything. There is nothing that exists within your life that he cannot be the God and the king over. Um, and we can feel like we are under circumstances, but God is over all those circumstances, and we really need to place our hands in his hand and say, God, I'm struggling with this, or I'm seeing people around me in pain and I don't know how to help them, or I'm discouraged by the pain that they're experiencing, whatever it is, but God, I put my hand in your hand because you are victorious over everything. You are king over all. Sure, thanks, Nicole. I trust that's encouraging for those of you that have had a difficult week let that be encouraging for those of you that maybe aren't in a life group at the moment. Didn't plan it like this at all. That was a spur of the moment thing. But just as Nicole was think, speaking, I'm thinking to myself, but that, this right here, on a one-to-one -one basis from someone who knows you, is why you go to life group. It's fantastic in a corporate environment where she can speak that as a word of encouragement from God's heart over all of us. But what we also need, it's not just a, a corporate example of that. We need a one-on-one -on -one example of that. If you're not in a life group, take the opportunity. There's a sign-up sheet at the guest, at the involvement desk. Afterwards, if you're visiting with us, you can fill in the, uh, the guest card and find out more. Someone will be in contact with you this week.